Hello, I know I'm crazy with Naja Hall podcast audience. How are you all today? Uh, you know what? Let me just tell you guys how I am. I'm stressed out. I am stressed the hell out today because I got stuck on Auntie Naja duties this weekend. And when the kids left, there was three kids. Um, I had to go out with my friends last night, have a lot of drinks. And then I took a sleeping pill when I got home. So I was like, wow, three days of single auntiehood for me wiped me out, which is so perfect because we have some guests here on the podcast today that can probably help me. Well, they, no, I think I'm beyond help, but they can help you guys to figure out this whole parenting thing. So are you tired of resources that are all theory and leave you asking, what do I actually do? And today's guests are going to help us answer that question. They created philosophies that start with transforming the way we think about parenting and then cuts to the chase and gives us practical strategies we can actually use. These girls are going to help us to get on our feet because let's stop raising kids, as they say. Let's focus on raising some adults. <gasps> All right, after this dance break, we are going to meet Future Focused Parenting. I know I'm crazy. Kara Dorian and Dina Thayer are the co-founders of Future Focused Parenting, the groundbreaking parenting philosophy that starts with the end in mind. Together, they co-host the Raising Adults podcast, where they discuss various topics related to parenting with a long-range view. Both Kira and Dina are also speakers, authors, and they are passionate about helping families thrive rather than simply survive their parenting journey. Let me tell y'all, ladies. Miss Naja is, uh, I didn't survive. I didn't thrive. I didn't do anything this past weekend. (laughs) I don't even know where to start. And I know my guests have so many questions because I told everybody I was talking to you guys. So they sent questions in, but I have to ask questions first. What do you do when you are overseeing, caretaking, taking care of children whose parents have completely different philosophies than what you were raised on? What the heck do you do, especially when it comes to discipline? Hmm. Anybody can take the floor on that one. That's my first question. <laughs> it's a great question. So you're saying when you're, the parenting philosophy for these children doesn't match then how you were parented? Anything that I ever, no philosophy that I have in life, apparently. That's what I found out. This <laughs> well, I love this question because I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned that we love about our philosophy is the idea of taking a proactive approach. So I I think that that's really key. If you're going to be taking care of someone else's children, or if you're a grandparent or a caregiver, right, but not or step parent, that you're having a proactive conversation about, hey, what is your parenting philosophy? How do you handle discipline? How would you like me to walk alongside you? If I notice this, that, or the other, and just having that conversation sometimes can just give you the skills that you need, right? They might just be able to say, well, you know, we do this, if this happens, we do this, if this happens, or I don't mind, you're in charge today. You can do it however you feel comfortable, which gives you permission to just be yourself. But sometimes just even starting with that conversation of, hey, I want to make sure that I'm matching your parenting style or that I'm, you know, parenting today, your children in a way that feels good to you. That's a great proactive thing that you can do right away. Dina, I'm sure you have other thoughts as well. I completely agree. And then I was thinking, but what if you are just thrown in, you know, you're on, I mean, I know we've had situations where suddenly on aunt and uncle duty 
And our siblings have not communicated anything to us except what their favorite color sippy cup is (laughs) and how they do bedtime. How many times I have to sing wheels on the bus. (laughs) And so I think, I think there is also something to be said for it is a different person. So kids, we sometimes don't give them enough credit for being as adaptable as they are to understanding, oh, I'm with, I'm with, you know, Auntie Dina, it is going to look a little different because that isn't mom and dad. So there probably is room for you to do it more the way that you're comfortable and have a little bit of wiggle room, so to speak. The other thing that is really helpful is maybe if it's not, unless it's like a bedtime thing, they've got to have their own special ceremony on their pillow or whatever. We ask to watch the kids in our home because then it also gives us more ability to just say, you know what, in Auntie Dina's house, we don't jump on the couch, you know, so that we ha- we can use the fact that it's our space to set up some of those expectations where we might do it a little bit differently. And then, you know what, now our nieces and nephews, they know, oh, if you're with Auntie Dina and Uncle Scott, you, you don't jump on the furniture. So they know that. And it, it isn't setting up animosity or anything yucky. They just know, oh, it's different at their house. I like that. I like that. So you guys, one of your philosophies is starting with the end in mind. And what a lot of us think when we hear, oh my God, the end in mind means 18 years old. But you know, that's when the kids are, and I'm throwing air quotes for those of you guys that can't see us. That's when they're adults. But from what we've learned about childhood development, we are not adults. We are not capable of thinking on an adult level, making adult decisions at 18. So what exactly is the philosophy of what's behind that? I would love to know the thought process. Yeah, that's a great question. And I could not agree with you more. I think we're seeing even more now that a chronological age does not an adult make. Yeah, no, not even 35 year olds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you've got a 35-year-old son still on your couch playing video games, what you have is a boy who can shave. You don't have a man, okay? A boy who can grow hair. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So that is really true. In fact, there's a new term in sociology now called adultolescence because what they're realizing is people who are chronological adult age are still acting like adolescents. So this is where Kira and I take a lot of normal parenting philosophies and kind of flip them on their head because so many parents are just trying to fix what's happening in the moment and they're not thinking about the adult. So what we encourage families to do with those things you mentioned, the why and the values and being proactive is, can you think about what you might like that grown up to include? What kind of character traits might they have? How do they navigate through the world? Well, when you're thinking about that, even if what's in front of you is a three-year-old, you might respond to that tantrum very differently because you're thinking about what are you instilling for that person? Because we don't want adult adolescents. We want actual adults. Kira, I'm sure you have some piggybacking. I gotta see you shaking your head. No, I'm, I'm saying yes. What she said. <laughs> But yeah. she said, and that's the key. I think what, what, what Dina said right at the end there is what makes it different because then when you kind of have a sense of who you want to raise, how you want them to handle disappointment, how you want them to handle conflict, how you want them to handle big feelings. Well, it does inform how you deal with your three-year-old because instead of just getting the three-year-old to stop having a tantrum and doing whatever it takes to shut the tantrum down. If you're like, actually, I don't want to teach them that when they throw a big fit that I'm going to give them a lollipop to shut them up. 
I actually want them to learn how to develop the skills they're going to need in adulthood to cope with disappointment. Well, that means you're going to get down on their level and you're going to give them some coping skills and you're going to walk them through what's happening instead of just trying to squish the tantrum because you're thinking about the adult that you're trying to raise. So the payoff comes a lot later, though we would say that oftentimes if you're starting this young, you start to see that payoff at a very young age too. Um, so but girl, you're- when do you start um, do, like teaching them the coping mechanisms? Obviously it's age appropriate. So when is it, what's a per- good age, depending on the child's development, obviously, but if they're socialized normally, yeah. not developmentally um, challenged in any way, what's a good time to start? Birth is a great okay. time. And here's why. Obviously, your newborn is going to have no concept of the skills that you're teaching them at birth. What you're doing, if you can start this right away, is you're actually developing your own vocabulary and your own way of handling these situations so that when they get to the age where they can start to really absorb this, which is probably around one, two, um, you already have the words in your mouth so that you're not having to kind of do it on the fly. So Mm. even at a little age, it's okay if your baby's crying and you know that they're sad, you can even say, Hey, Oh, I can see that you're really sad. That's just you practicing, helping them name their feelings. Right. Um, Or let's take a deep breath together. Obviously the baby's not going to take a deep breath, but you're practicing how you might engage with the toddler who's having the meltdown so that when the meltdown happens in the grocery store, because obviously that's where it's going to happen, you're not going, oh, no, no, I know I have to instill some emotional coping skills. What do I do? Well, you've been doing that the whole way through. And so it just feels more natural and normal for you. So that's a practice time for you from birth. But I would say from about age one, kids can start to really absorb some of this stuff. You might not see the benefits of it until they're two or three, um, but they are absorbing from very, very, very little. So if you've done everything, you're on par with teaching them, grooming the kids, showing them the pattern, what are some good markers to let you know that, all right, this has been working. This future focused parenting has been working. Um, What are some signs that you can see that it's going pretty good? Yeah, that's a great question because it is nice for parents to finally get to see the fruit of all the hard work. Yes. Yeah, because we're really honest that this kind of philosophy, especially if you start it early, the work is front loaded. So the beginning is the hard part. And so it's nice to know, oh, what's happening? So I'll give an example with sibling squabbles because that happens to everybody. You know, siblings are fighting and the parent feels like, what? Am I wearing a whistle? Because why am I refereeing all day long? Right. It can easily feel like that. But when we do what Kira just described and actually get down, give them the vocabulary, because when they're real little, we're probably going to have to hand it to them. Like, you know, your sister looks really frustrated that you took that toy from her. Let's talk about that. And as you teach them to do that problem solving together, the amazing thing happens one day where they you start to hear a little little spat in the background and then they start the dialogue. You know what? That was really frustrating for me. I need to tell you that really upset me. And then the other child was like, that, you know, that makes sense to me that that frustrated you. Let's talk about how we can take turns or whatever. And you're like, wow, the fruit of my labor is happening right yes. now. You start to see them. Totally. They start to take the initiative. The other thing that we sometimes encourage parents to, you can 
dip the toe in the water if you don't want to just wait till they're doing it. If you've seen them practicing this and you've been doing it alongside them and you see that they have the skills, it's also totally okay to tell probably even by four or five to tell your kids, you know what, you have all the tools you need to do this. I'm going to let you try to work it out. And then if you get stuck, come and find me. Because of course, as parents, we still want to be available if they hit a speed bump, but we want to empower them to use the tools we've given them as soon as we think that they might be ready. Mm. So you talk a lot about emotional intelligence on your website. You 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 have so much information on your podcast. You speak about that. And here on this podcast, we are adult focused emotional intelligence because we know that a lot of adults ain't got that. They don't necessarily have that. So then how would you define emotional intelligence? And then how do we begin to teach our little ones uh, the, just about what that means and what that looks like? I love this question. I'll say it again. I love this question. (laughs) My favorite topic ever. Um, So I think emotional intelligence is really the ability to A, understand our own emotions, recognize those emotions in others, and be able to communicate around those emotions and process them effectively. So Mm -hmm. it links to things like empathy, compassion, but also self-awareness and good, healthy coping skills emotionally for ourselves. So for our kids, uh, we use a framework called the three ends framework. It's three simple steps that parents can do. And again, you can start practicing this when they're teensy tiny, and then you'll develop the skill to be able to just jump right into the three ends. But the three ends are name it, normalize it, nurture it. So when you see a big feeling for your child, you want to name it for them if they're too little to be able to name it for themselves. So you might say, just like Dina said, wow, I can tell that you're feeling really frustrated because they don't know what frustrated means. They just yeah. know they feel kind of funny in their body and it's a yucky feeling and it's really big. Um, so we want to give them the vocabulary. What you're going to notice as they get older, one of those markers that you were asking about is that they start to name it for you. Mom, I am really frustrated. Boom, your N is done. You don't even have to do anything. They've brought it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so this that kind of name it becomes notice it, where they start to notice it themselves. The second N, in my humble opinion, is the most important for emotional intelligence, and that's to normalize it. We mm-hmm. skip this a lot in our lives. We skip it in parenting. We certainly as adults have not been taught to do this. And that is the simple acknowledgement of the fact that most everyone has experienced this feeling at some point in their life. You cannot get through life without feeling sad, mad, frustrated, disappointed, embarrassed. You cannot get through life without hurting someone's feelings, making a mistake. All of these things, they're very normal. And when we can normalize it for our kids, it helps them calm down because they're like, oh, I see. Everyone's been through this. And it helps them process it faster. As adults, a great way to think about this is, The more you tell yourself, like, don't be stupid, don't be upset about that, that's a stupid thing to be upset about, guess what? It doesn't go away. Why? Because the feeling is going, but I... I do, I do care about it. Hello, I'm here. And when we can normalize it, even for ourselves, like, oh, you know what? That's normal. Of course, I'm upset about that. That was an upsetting situation. It makes sense to me that I'm upset. Boom, now we can move through it. And that takes us to the nurture. So for normalizing, two ways parents can do this. One is just simply saying, that makes sense to me. So you look frustrated. I'm naming it. That makes sense to me. I don't like it when I don't get to eat what I want at dinner either. Right? It's true. Because you don't. It doesn't mean you're going to change your mind, but you can acknowledge that the feeling is legit. Mm -hmm. And then you can also share a story from your own life. So um, 
when my kids were younger and I had to give out consequences occasionally for discipline, I would say, you know, I remember when I was your age, I got a consequence for something like this. And, oh, I was so mad about it. And my kids loved hearing that and actually got to a point where they asked for it. Can you tell me a time when you had a consequence? Because it made them feel <laughs> like I'm not the only kid in the world who's ever been disciplined, right? right. That, you're normal. You're a kid. You're going to do this. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm blabbering on. No, I, on lo- I love, 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 I, oh my gosh, I love all of this. So speaking of consequences, um, people define consequences in different discipline in vastly different ways. Some people are saying, I'm going to let these kids raise themselves, which I forget what you call that form of parenting. I think Will and Jada practice that. And then some people are harsher disciplinarians and support corporal punishment and stuff like that. And there's studies to show that probably support and rip apart each one of somebody's uh, philosophies on discipline, right? Like you can find a study to support all of it. So have you found that there is a best practice that's like a universal best practice? And, you know, if I put the kids I had this weekend, you guys as kids and just put everybody in a room, is there like a universal thing that works as far as issuing consequences so this child can learn this behavior is not tolerated, it's not safe, it's not okay, I don't want you to do it anymore. Is there like a best practice? What's a universal remote? That, wow, I mean, that's, of course, the largest can of worms you could have opened. Let's get into it. Let's go ahead and dig at these worms. Let me have a swig of my tea. (laughs) Because the truth is we we want to find this kind of one size fits all thing. And what, what we notice and why we kind of developed our philosophy. One element of that is a philosophy is one thing, but the practical parts have to be customizable to your family. It, there isn't Ah, one size fits all, but here's what there is. There are, wait a minute. There are principles, though, that are universally true. So here is the thing Kira and I would say probably above all about discipline is it can't be missing from the equation. That being said, we are very much both and the discipline has to be carried out in the context of I know my parent loves me and is supportive of me because a consequence without a relationship backing it up is way too authoritarian and all love and no consequences really can result in a lot of this. Well, a lot of what you're describing adults who aren't adults because they've had no boundaries. There's been no structure. And so what we say to parents, is they're like, well, what do I do about discipline? Our thing is please do it and, and do it with love and couched in that emotional intelligence we're talking about. So what we talk about is there are three types of consequences and they will work for just about anything. If one of them doesn't, one of the other categories probably will. I love so you first- guys' lists. You have like numbered bulleted lists. This is perfect. Very organized. <laughs> we are, I mean, I, I, I fully admit it. Like there's a lot of nerdiness going on at Future Focus Parenting. So, but again- it. It's because we want parents to have actual tools, you know, and if you can remember the three ends, well, that's a lot easier than like, what do I say next when they're having a big feeling? You know, it's like, pull out your three ends, pull out your toolkit. So the three, the three types of consequences start with natural consequences. Like, oh, you know what? You chose not to bring your coat today and now you're cold. Well, that's a bummer. So you let, you let life hand out the consequence. They're cold because they didn't bring your coat. You're not the heavy in that situation. There's no battle. You know, a lot of parents say, pick your battles. We're for like, let's not have a battle if we don't have to. So that's a natural consequence. Let life hand it out. Mm 
A logical consequence is when it really matches what happened. You know, I, I asked you not to play hide and seek near grandma's breakable stuff and you broke the vase. We're going to have you raise some money to pay for it. That's logical. It's like fits what happened, right? But there is a time where sometimes there's not a natural consequence. Sometimes there's not a logical one that quite fits. Like if a child hits, we're not going to hit the kid, right? That we're not going right. to do that. So that's when we rely on this last one. And it's really helpful. And that's a currency consequence. Find out what matters to your child. What's a privilege in their life? Is it playing video games? Is it getting a special snack before dinner time? Is it an extra story at bedtime? And then that can be taken away as a consequence. It's currency to them, meaning it matters in some way. You know what? You were really goofing off and took a lot of our time getting ready for bed. I'm not going to be able to offer you a third book tonight. And that's not mean. It's still loving. It's here's what I'm not going to be able to do because of what happened. So we find that really helpful. And usually, like I said, if one of them won't work, one of the other ones will. Yes. And I think what's really important about everything that Dina just said is that it prevents the extremes because what doesn't work is you didn't get your shoes on in time. That's it. We're canceling Disneyland because you can't follow that through. And we see parents do that all the time. They make these huge disciplinary judgment calls And then they can't follow it through. And kids have to see that we mean what we say. And that's Mm -hmm. not just for discipline, because guess what? If you can follow through on discipline and show, I mean what I say, then it means that when you say, I love you, you also mean what you say, Mm -hmm. right? So it's really important. We're picking things that are easy to follow through, that are as logical as possible and where they're not match your child's currency, but not these big grandiose, you know, that's it. Disneyland's off the table. Right. Because you're not going to do it. We're not going to cancel Disney. We're not going to do it. And then what does the kid learn? Actually, there was no consequence. There was a threat, but no actual consequence. And it also prevents the other extreme, which is no boundaries at all, which kids need boundaries. We talk about this on the show all the time. If you think about a baby in utero, all they have are boundaries. It's what makes them feel safe. Mom's got me. I can literally feel where my boundaries are. And they come into the world. And the reason they test those boundaries is they're asking, have you got me? Have you got me? Have you got me? And so we need to create boundaries. But where I think a lot of parents get confused because there's a lot of confusing information out there is a boundary doesn't mean canceling Disneyland, but it can mean I'm putting a boundary here. And then right in in this space is all the room for your feelings. And we're going to hear them. It doesn't make your feelings not valid. It's like what I was saying earlier, like just because I'm not going to change my dinner plan doesn't mean I can't also acknowledge that you have feelings about it. You're allowed to have feelings about that. I can still set a boundary. My husband and I like to joke that we set really strong boundaries for our kids. And then we really want to know how they feel about it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do this, but tell me how you feel. And I wasn't even going to ask this question, but you mentioned that. And I I do want to know more because I'm sure there's a lot of parents um, and step parents that are dealing with this um, adoptive parents, any type of parent that's listening to this. Um, Picky eaters. You mentioned something about food, and that's probably one of the biggest gripes that I experience and a lot of people experience is dealing with the picky eaters, whether they're our own biologically or children that are in our care who we necess- we might not have necessarily reared and taught textures of food and all this stuff. So then what do you do? If you're a person like me, you're like, hey, today I'm cooking meat, potatoes, and carrots. I mean... You know, and if you don't eat that, then what? Like, what are you supposed to do? 
Such a good question. And I have five and I've got biological kids and stepkids. So (sighs) I remember when I was new in this family and learning to cook and my stepkids weren't used to my cooking, which totally makes sense. Right. And that is, and their kids will tell you too. My mama doesn't cook like this. Yeah. They'll tell you. They don't, the filter is not fully developed. They're going to let you know if they don't like the food. The other thing that was weird for me, going from a single mom with two kids to married mom with five, I had no frame of reference for cooking for a family of seven. So the first night we had leftovers, I was like doing the happy dance because uh, I could not make enough food for these people. But to your question, that, sorry for the rabbit trail, but to your question, the, here's what we tried to do. Cause we also have a vegan in our family. One of our kids is vegan. We have some food challenges with just texture and whatever is I, I am unwilling to become a short order cook. And oh. I, I'm, I'm just saying we don't recommend that parents make a different meal for everybody. There has to be some understanding in a family dynamic that we really care about everyone's con- contribution to this team and this family. And yet, if there's someone making a meal for the family, serving you in that way, their time is also valuable. They're not going to be making seven different different things. So what I tried to do was make sure there was at least one, say we're having you know, a meat, a vegetable, a starch, et cetera. I would always make sure there was one thing that worked for my vegan child, one thing that worked for the one with food challenges. But I cannot guarantee that everything on your plate is going to work for you. We also didn't do forced eating, like, well, you have to eat it. You know, if you don't eat animal products, I'm not making you take a bite of the steak. Right. But I can make sure there's some veggies on that plate for you. That's that's not hard for me to do. Um, Kira also does a great thing in her family called the no thank you bite, especially when confronted with a new food. Take a bite of it, at least give it a try. But if it's not for you, you're allowed to say no, thank you. And we're not going to say now clean your plate and eat all of it. Okay. You know, so there's, there's a lot of approaches there, but we, we, and, and Kira, I'm sure you might have more to add, but we're definitely not saying advocating for being that short order cook. There does have to be room for kids to learn that sometimes the situation is what it is. We're all going to be faced with things in life that aren't our favorite. It might not be food on our plate, but we are going to be faced with that. And the ability to cope with that is also really important and to do it politely. So we talk a lot on the show also about how do you decline a food that you don't care for politely? We talk a lot about manners and things like that. That's an important life skill as well for your future adult that you're trying to raise. Yes. We have very picky children in our home. I mean, the pickiest of the pickiest. And (laughs) Um, so yeah, the no thank you bite has helped once my kids were old enough to be able to at least like make a slice of toast and grab an apple. Then it became, if you don't want to eat it, that's totally cool. I'm going to just ask you to make your own dinner tonight, um, and join us at the table. And that helped a ton to not have to just prep three completely different meals. Um, so that's worked a lot. And then I know we don't do this in our family, but a friend of mine does, and I, I really do love it as a concept. Um, they go through and um, everybody gets to pick a meal every week. So if one kid picks mac and cheese, the whole family eats mac and cheese. But then if a parent picks, you know, steak and potatoes, then everybody's agreeing that they're going to eat whatever that person picked. So everybody feels like they have some ownership over a meal um, and you're eating the same thing together. Um, So in our house, because I do have pickies, we do like a couple nights a week. I make everything that everyone can eat. And then the rest of the week, it's, you can just make yourself some toast. You're on your own, buddy. Yeah. And I just make sure that their lunch that day is protein packed so that if they're going to have kind of a crappy dinner, you know, it's been literally like we did that too, Kira. We literally had a name for it. We called it yo-yo, which stands for you're on your own. (laughs) 
Today is yo-yo day, guys. Yeah. So, Dina, you mentioned that you were a single mom, and then you acquired a family of <laughs> a partner, three, so four people. Yes. So, boom, this, like, magic Brady Bunch thing happened. Insta family, yeah. Yeah, so you had an Insta family. And so, I always like to people ask people, especially those that are step-parents, that were parents already. I know you probably had a different way, a completely different family culture than your husband did in child rearing, mannerisms, yes ma'am, no ma'am, like all that stuff just, you know. And so how were you, did you find yourself having to be super flexible, um, especially with things that you did not like, um, that the kids or, or, or I don't want to say not, yes, you didn't like, things that were different, yes. areas of opportunity. How areas did you, of opportunity. Areas of opportunity. Yes. So how did you manage those areas of opportunity and make everything cohesive? Yes, I love this question because it is definitely a serious on the it's on the front burner in a blended family. Absolutely. If any issues you have are going to come to light. It's like holding up a full length mirror to your own in, insecurities and issues. <laughs> so when you get into the family and you don't do things the same, which you won't, you've already we both have been parenting for about a decade before we even met each other. So, of course, we're not going to do it differently. So, yes, one thing you mentioned was flexibility. My husband and I developed our two watchwords were flexibility and sensitivity. We have to be sensitive to understanding that this is what has worked for this other family and have some grace for that, but also be flexible that we might need to incorporate some things that are new and maybe even feel hard at first. So one thing we did that really cut down a lot on any kind of animosity is at least for the first several years, we parented down biological lines particularly when it came to discipline. So things like, hey, remove your shoes when you come in the house. Of course, I could ask my stepson to do that. But I did not hand my stepson a consequence. His dad would do that. And if I needed to meet out a consequence to one of my biological children, I did that. And we kept that for at least the first several years. And it really helped. So there was nobody coming in, trying to overstep, discipline someone else's kids. Because the other thing we were hoping to prevent, we didn't prevent it, but we mitigated it was getting the, well, you're not my mom. I don't have to, you know, which is so easy for them to go through. We think about, you know, a remarriage to the adults is really happy to the kids. It's another loss. It's a scary thing. Yes. It's the reality. You know what? My parents aren't ever getting back together. And, it, and, it, and in the instance where a child has had the loss of a parent, it can feel like, oh, my dad replaced mom, you know, and it's painful. So having an understanding for their pain means especially initially not coming in and trying to discipline kids that that aren't your biological kids. So that really helped us a lot. But yeah, 100 percent flexibility and sensitivity had to be the order of the day for a long time until we kind and of it sounds like it you out. and your husband had a really good thing because you made it known you sat down and you had a plan beforehand you know so many times often in my own practice i'll find parents that they do have drastically different definitions of what discipline and rearing means and then they want to either impose this on their partner mm-hmm. or you have these parents that are completely lax and do nothing yeah. and so that is what creates a whole lot of tension. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about, for our last question, about childhood anxiety. And I don't know if childhood anxiety is on the increase because we now have studies that are more child focused or because our kids have access to stuff like social media and yada, yada, yada. And so I know that you guys speak a little bit about empowering anxious children. And how do you first recognize that your child might be 
an overly anxious child? And then how, how do you exactly empower them? It's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, there for a long, long time, there was a very dismissive attitude around anxious kids. Yeah. They'll be fine. They'll grow out of it you're okay. Um, you know, and I think we have to, as parents, just put an end to that and say, you know what, these are growing human beings. They are little pulsing hearts walking around the earth. The fact that they are sensitive is not a bad thing. It tells, it gives us an insight into the pressures that they're feeling. The, the world is crazy paced, crazy paced. I mean, I think we all discovered that in the pandemic when things got quiet, it was like, oh, Wow. This is nuts. Insane. Yeah. So no wonder our kids are anxious, school pressures, all this stuff. And then you add the pandemic on top. Let's not be shocked that we have some anxious kids. I'm not. I was fully expecting kids to be a hot mess when this pandemic came through. <laughs> yeah. And guess what? They're matching my expectations. <laughs> so let's start by back to that end. Let's start by normalizing that. It's okay to be anxious. Of course you're anxious. My um, kids had a presentation at school a couple weeks ago and they were really nervous. And instead of being like, don't be nervous. I said, yeah, that makes sense. I used to get nervous before presentations too, because guess what I did. So I think some of what can help mitigate anxiety is actually the normalizing piece of like, that makes sense to me. Of course you're feeling that way. But what you're looking for really is kids that maybe aren't coping well with it. Mm. their day-to-day uh-huh. anxieties is it preventing them from wanting to be social is it preventing them from wanting to go to school um, is it causing such high levels of stress that they're not functioning well and when you're seeing that that is exactly the time that we need to be intervening depending on the level and looking for those coping skills which is that third end which is the nurture so you've got this big anxious feeling part of what causes that anxiety is they don't know what to do with it they've never felt this way before even as an adult when I get anxiety, I don't love how that feels, but I've had it before. So I can walk myself through and be like, okay, I know this will pass. Kids often haven't experienced that before. So of course they're like, am I dying? I don't know. You know? So I think once we've normalized it for them, we want to give those coping skills and that can be anything from breathing exercises, meditation. Um, Some kids really need physical coping skills, going for a run, punching a punching bag, jumping on a trampoline, doing jumping jacks. Um, Some kids do really well with singing. Singing is one of my favorite tools to teach kids because it does three awesome things. One, we were remembering the lyrics. We can't be thinking about whatever was worrying us. We're literally not capable, so it immediately distracts our brain. Two, it causes us to take regular breaths when we sing because we take those natural breaths. So our breathing starts to slow down, our heart rate slows down, and then singing releases endorphins. So we feel better because when kids are flooding, when they're in that anxious state, they cannot problem solve. They cannot think logically. I mean, you see parents do this all the time. The kids are flooding and they're like, tell me now, one, two, three. And you're like, they can't, they literally aren't functioning. They're in their amygdala. It's firing like crazy and they're not thinking straight. So we got to get them out of this lizard brain and back into their functioning brain that can go, oh, now I can think logically and process. So any kind of calming coping skills is going to help reduce the anxiety to a point where they can problem solve. Wow. Amygdala, lizard brain. Oh, wow. This has been extremely informative. And I know everybody has learned so much from our future focus parenting experts. 
Dina and Kira. So can you guys tell everybody where to find you, how to find you, um, so they can be all up in every single thing that you do? Yeah. So, so a first great place to go, which you already mentioned is our website. You can learn more about us, what we do, book us for speaking engagements right there. It's futurefocusedparenting.com and it is focused with an ED. You've been pronouncing it beautifully. We get people mess that up all the time. So future focused parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Right. We're future focused. So futurefocusedparenting.com is a great spot for just learning more about us, purchasing digital resources, anything like that. We are also on social media and we're pretty active there on both Facebook and Instagram. And we also announce when the episodes drop so people don't miss out on our podcast and things like that. And our handle is at Future Focused Parenting. And then Kira. Yes. And the podcast is on all major platforms. It's called Raising Adults. It's a picture of Dina and I smiling pretty. (laughs) Um, Can't miss it. It's green. Um, And we talk about everything on the show and everything and anything to do with parenting. We have great guests who come on the show sometimes. um, And you can find that on all major platforms. And then if you go to our website, depending on when this is going to air, we have a freebie that runs till the end of the year and you can find it on the website. Yes, yes. Everybody, please go and visit them. Make sure when you stop by that you tell them Naja Hall sent you. And thank you all so much for joining today. Everybody that's out there, and I know I'm crazy with Naja Hall land. I will see you Tuesday after next. Thank you so much for listening. I know I'm crazy with Naja Hall on all your favorite streaming platforms. Oh.